What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hey everyone, it's Major Garrett, and welcome to our new podcast. Did you know we have a new feed completely separate from the takeout as well? Please just search Debriefing the Briefing. Click subscribe, and then if you can, and we'd really love this, drop us a rating and or a review. Pretty soon, you'll have to be subscribed to the new feed if you want to hear new episodes of Debriefing the Briefing. Thank you, and now let's start the show. You talk about the WHO being China-centric. What exactly are you talking about? Is it because China's underplayed how many victims I don't know. They seem to come down on the side of China. They don't report what's really going on. They didn't see it. How do you not see it? I will tell you as a a non-scientist up here that I, I, I see glimmers of hope. I fully expect that by the time we get to the fall that we will have this under control enough that it certainly will not be the way it is now where people are shutting schools. But it's going to be different. Remember now, because this is not going to disappear. From CBS Audio, this is Debriefing the Briefing. Here's CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett. Hello from Washington and welcome to Debriefing the Briefing, a summary of the highlights of the daily White House Coronavirus Task Force Briefing. The April 7th briefing was the 34th by the task force. It lasted one hour and 44 minutes. President Trump participated for about an hour of that. Here are some of the highlights. The president was critical of the World Health Organization, saying it got many things wrong and was, in his words, China-centric. It's worth pointing out that in February, the president's budget sought a $3 billion cut to all global health programs and a halving of the World Health Organization allocation from the United States. Republicans have accused the World Health Organization of echoing China and praising it for its transparency as late as mid-March. President Trump said he did not see a memo from top economic advisor Peter Navarro in January 29th warning about a COVID-19 pandemic, but he did say He closed down travel from China. That is partially true, but the president did not warn the public and did not order stockpile supplies or beef up testing for that potential and now real pandemic. The president also questioned the usefulness of independent inspectors general and relieved the one assigned to oversee the recently passed $2.3 trillion economic lifeline legislation. Vice President Pence said there was evidence of stabilization of the impact of the virus, and Anthony Fauci said it is unlikely summer camps for children will be able to go on this year, but likely a normal or semi-normal fall school year can be anticipated. I want to bring in our national security correspondent, David Martin, to talk about what COVID-19 has meant at the Pentagon. David, I'm going to just ask you this. Have you seen anything like this in terms of mobilization or the reorienting of the Pentagon toward something like this in your long career at the Pentagon? No, I've uh, certainly seen uh, uh, many mobilizations for war, um, but never a mobilization like this uh, to uh, deal with an enemy that's already gotten inside our gates. Um, And right now, there are approximately 50,000 men and women in uniform who are dealing with this uh, 
uh, coronavirus in one way or another. That counts active duty military, that counts reservists who have been called up, and that counts um, the National Guard that the uh, governors in each of the states have called up. Now, 50,000 out of a total force of 2.3 million is not a lot. Um, don't, uh, don't trust my math, but I, that's a very small percentage. Um, but remember, this is a 2.3 million that exists to fight an enemy you can see um, with uh, guns and, and missiles and, and all of the uh, weapons of war. Um, so this is not a military that is ideally suited to combating a coronavirus. The one thing it can really do well is through the Army Corps of Engineers, it can create hospital space. The Army Corps of Engineers doesn't build a thing, but it sends engineers into uh, large spaces like the Javits Center in New York, the McCormick Center in Chicago. They survey what that building is capable of handling in the way of uh, hospital beds, and then they let a contract with a civilian uh, contracting firm that builds uh, the space for the beds. And since the start of this crisis, the Army Corps of Engineers has um, built space for 15,000 hospital beds. Now, the problem is the uh, military does not have the medical uh, personnel to staff 15,000 hospital beds. So the, the, the burden of staffing those uh, beds uh, still will fall on the uh, civilian health care system. And David, uh, this is a complicated story, but I want to ask you about the departure of the acting Navy secretary and the fate of Captain Brett Crozier of the USS Theodore Roosevelt. I'll let you begin that, and then we'll talk about something the president said at the briefing. The uh, captain of the uh, Roosevelt, Brett Crozier, uh, sent out a four-page letter in which he uh, was essentially a plea for help to the Navy, uh, saying that his, uh, his sailors were going to die of coronavirus unless they got more help in getting the sailors off the ship uh, so that the ship could be uh, cleansed and they could get the virus off the ship. The Secretary of the Navy thought he was doing everything possible to make that happen, and then woke up one morning when he was out in uh, Los Angeles visiting the hospital ship uh, Mercy uh, to find uh, that this four-page letter, uh, which he was seeing for the first time in the San Francisco Chronicle. And he was uh, more than a little peeved that uh, the captain of the Roosevelt had put that letter out in a way that almost guaranteed it would leak because he sent it to uh, so many people on an unclassified network and there was no, there was no classification on the letter. So the <clears throat> Secretary of the Navy, Thomas Modley, uh, relieved Crozier of his command. And then that was, that was a controversial decision to begin with because uh, some people, including his own Chief of Naval Operations, had recommended that he uh, first conduct an investigation before he take action against Crozier. Modley went ahead and did it anyway, and then he went out to the ship, which had pulled into Guam to try and uh, get the infected uh, 
sailors off the ship. He, he went out there and he addressed the crew. And in that address, which naturally was recorded by uh, hundreds of crew members who had their cell phones uh, handy, he uh, said that the captain of their ship, who was a very popular captain, was either naive or stupid to write a letter like that and think that it would uh, remain secret. So after he said that, and the tape of that inevitably leaked, he was in a real pickle because he had basically dissed uh, this entire aircraft carrier, which is not what a Secretary of the Navy should be seen uh, doing. He first put out a statement saying he stood by every word, and then when the reaction became clearer and clearer that you just, you know, you can't talk when you're the acting Secretary of the Navy, you just can't talk to sailors like that. Uh, he first issued an apology, and uh, he, uh, he submitted his uh, letter of resignation to uh, Secretary of Defense uh, Mark Esper. Let me pause you right there, David. The president was asked about this at the Tuesday briefing. Let's play that sound. The acting Navy secretary submitted his resignation today, Modley. Uh, why did that become necessary, and what, what role did you have in this, sir? Well, I had no role in it. Uh, I've, I've heard, I don't know him, but I've heard he was a very good man. And uh, it was a, the whole thing was a very unfortunate. Uh, the captain should not have written a letter. He didn't have to be Ernest Hemingway. He made a mistake, but he had a bad day. So the president has said that a couple of times, David, uh, that he looked into Captain Crozier's record, found it to be, this is a direct quote, exemplary, and wants to try to find a way that his entire life is not ruined because he had a bad day or a bad week. Uh, but do you find credible the president's assertion he played no role in this? Well, he certainly played a role in uh, in this uh, way. Uh, Modley has said that one of the reasons he took action uh, as quickly as he did to relieve uh, the captain of the Roosevelt was he wanted to forestall the president from intervening in the case as he had done in the case of Navy SEAL Edward Gallagher. The reason... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, Thomas Modley is the acting secretary of the Navy is because the secretary of the Navy, uh, Richard Spencer, had been fired for having gotten crosswise with President Trump on the whole fiasco of the Eddie Gallagher trial. And so uh, Modley was trying to forestall a repeat fiasco, but he ended up uh, triggering a second fiasco. And where does this sit, do you think, within the military itself and the Navy in particular? Is it just an unfortunate incident that will be quickly forgotten or something that in the atmosphere already tense because of COVID-19, close quarters and the like within the Navy and the military will have echoes for a while? Well, you, you kind of feel sorry for the, uh, the crew of the uh, Roosevelt because uh, whenever that carrier's name is mentioned for the next uh, number of years, this is all anybody's going to think about, coronavirus, no matter what it does um, around uh, the world. But, you know, the real issue here is the readiness of the U.S. military, and is the coronavirus having an impact on the readiness of the U.S. military? Because, remember, while they're uh, supporting uh, the battle against coronavirus, their day job is to protect 
the United States against uh, enemies. And you can't have a valuable uh, weapon system like an aircraft carrier uh, be knocked out of commission by, um, by a virus. Um, the other, they have 10 other carriers, but not all 10 of them are uh, out of dock and, and ready to sail. And this is a, a major concern with uh, the, the leadership of the Pentagon is how do we protect these high value uh, assets that we have, the ones that we're going to call on first if, if a balloon goes up somewhere from being sidelined by the coronavirus. So what the Army has done, for instance, is uh, take some of their uh, first deploying units like the 82nd Airborne and basically put them in lockdown uh, so they uh, d- don't run any risk of exposure to coronavirus. And the Navy says that the Roosevelt is the only ship deployed that has uh, any sailors that have tested positive for coronavirus. So uh, that is, that's a good sign, and sooner or later the, the virus will be cleansed from the uh, Roosevelt and it will be back underway. If you, if you want to know probably the most serious impact that the virus has had on the military so far, it is the suspension of basic training. That's, that's like not putting the seeds in in, in um, spring. Uh, you're, you're just not, you're going to lose your flow of young men and women into the military. And it's now been suspended for two weeks. If that goes on for very long, uh, that will uh, mess up the system in a way that will take years to recover. And that's the voice of CBS News National Security Correspondent David Martin. I want to thank David very much. That's all for this episode of CBS Audio's Debriefing the Briefing. Until next time, I'm Major Garrett in Washington. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go... Tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.